Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck Podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A show designed to create connection, fuel compassion, activate change, and figure out just who the fuck you are. Hey gang, you're listening to the latest episode of the Who the Fuck Podcast. Today we're joined by Tiffany Yu, founder of Diversibility, Disability Advocate, Speaker, Writer, Coach, Consultant, and so much more. Today, Tiffany's going to share her own unique story about living with disability and how she translated her own experiences into her passion for helping others. But before we get started, Tiffany, why don't you share a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I do want to preface that my work is trauma-informed. And so the way I came into this work and became a disability advocate was partly or mainly because I acquired my disability at the age of nine. On a car ride home with my dad, he lost control of the car and I ended up permanently paralyzing one of my arms and much, much later would be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so today, exactly as you mentioned in the intro, I am just all about waving my disability pride flag as much as I can and making as much noise in the space to show what it looks like to be disabled and thrive. That's awesome. I feel like you have such a a great energy when you speak about it, too. And one of the things that you said in something that I had read was that I'd never considered myself a disability advocate, but I became one that year at this point in your life. And, And it was so powerful. It really resonated with me. And I bring that up because I I had a sort of similar experience in my own life, not related to disability, but in having really close encounters that affected people that I love and then being like, you know what, this is a real problem. And I feel like people need to be talking about it more and we need to be expressing these things because if we don't talk about them, then people won't understand them. And the fewer degrees of separation we have between ourselves and anything, the more we understand it. So can you tell me a little bit about that moment for you where you were like, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. This is this is going to be a core part of who I am and what I drive towards. Sure. That's a great question. So I also want to mention that I am the daughter of a Taiwanese immigrant, my dad, and a refugee from the Vietnam War, my mom. And I mention that because how I was raised really heavily influenced the lens through which I moved about the world. So not only was I now a disabled woman of, of color or, or an Asian disabled woman, I was now living under what it's like to be the daughter of immigrants in America. And within that family dynamic, death, disability, and trauma, aka the car accident, were all so heavily stigmatized and so taboo and seen as causing shame to the family. So after the car accident happened, we actually never talked about the car accident. And I think that you hit the nail on the head in terms of saying, we need to lessen those degrees of separation and talk about things in order to really better understand them, right? And because I wasn't even talking about my own experience, not only was I suppressing how I felt about it and the validity of it, but I was also making it bigger, right? It's like when we suppress how we're actually feeling, I call this, well, the term for it is called toxic positivity, right? It's saying good vibes only, only positive <laughs> things, no bad things ever happened, right? Yeah. When in reality, something bad did or not something traumatic did happen that needed an entire healing process. And so one of the things I often talk about is that time actually doesn't heal all wounds, right? We actually need to create spaces, whether they're professional or informal or peer support systems, to work through the things that have happened to us. So that turning point for me happened in 2009. 
And I can remember the day because it was October 22nd, 2009. And I had been invited to speak on a panel at my alma mater called Georgetown. I went to Georgetown. I saw that you were a fellow East Coaster. (laughs) Yes. Yes. East Coast. East Coast represents (laughs) West Coast, best coast. (laughs) I agree with you 100 percent. It's like I will not go back. It's very cold here right now. I'm not thrilled. (laughs) I know. I'm like, what what is winter? Yeah. (laughs) So on October 22nd, I got invited to speak on a panel and I got invited to speak on a panel because the person who was organizing the panel knew that I was disabled and that I was kind of exploring what my journey was in that space. And the panel was really because Georgetown was looking into launching a certificate on the graduate level or continuing education level around disability studies. So I was on this panel and that was the first time that I shared the story of the car accident publicly. And when I shared that story, I cried because And now looking back, I feel like I cried for two reasons. And the first reason was because I was holding in so much pain and this is what it felt like to let it out. Yeah, absolutely. And the second reason was what it felt like to be seen in my grief for the first time. And I think that both of those are really empowering in their own ways. And after that point in time, and there were a couple other things that happened that happened during that fall of 2009 that really made me think about, wow, I have just been validated that my story matters. And what I'm finding is I'm curious how much this story resonates with other people who haven't had an opportunity to have their stories shared. And so that's when the idea for diversibility came about, which is, wow, I have this story and I'm curious if there are other people who have similar stories I think what's interesting about disability, I mean, there are a lot of very interesting things about disability, but for me, it is all of our conditions are so different, you know, and you could even argue, you could even say that they're potentially unrelated to each other. But what unites us is the fact that we have been socially isolated and excluded. And all of us share that experience, disability or not, right? Totally. And so... I became really curious about what it would look like to root myself in a disability community. And once I met other disabled people, I realized, wow, I can actually tell people this story and have it reflected back to me or meet other people who have, who also have disabilities, but grew up in different family environments. And I think what I wanted to create was I wanted to showcase that disability is not a monolith. I can't come onto this platform and say, let me tell you what all disabled people are thinking, right? But what I can come onto this platform and say is, here is what my 20 plus years of living with a disability in the context, in the intersectional context of being the daughter of Asian immigrants, of being a woman, of acquiring my disability as a child and how that's manifested. That's such a beautiful response too, because I think that you, you capture a lot with that. I really love that you said disability is not a monolith. And I think that that speaks to what you mentioned at the top of this conversation being that, you know, the approach that you take is trauma informed, right? A disability, regardless of how it occurs or what that might be, there are deeper emotional impacts that happen with those things. And a disability might even just be a mental disability or a mental disorder. And there's I think a lot of room for growth in society to understand how those things do converge and and what you're creating with diversity as a platform for the conversations to start for people who may not believe that they have 
something in common there. It's really, you know, I think the root of who we are as people, you hit the nail on the head, right? It's, it's the sense of belonging. Like I want to know that I belong somewhere and it doesn't necessarily mean these are the only people that you can be around or hang out with or relate to, but there's something I think more visceral when you understand each other on that level. Mm, Yeah. When you started Diversibility, that was, I think you said, in around 2009. Is that when you kicked off the idea initially at Georgetown? Because I saw that you, you had started it off while you were there and then sort of picked it back up. Can you tell me a little bit about the progression of Diversibility and what your current mission is with it? Sure. So it's interesting when I talk about it because I'm like, in 2009, is that 1.0 or is that 0.0? And are we in 2.0 or 1.0? But yeah. the, first iter- the first iteration of Diversibility started as a club at Georgetown. And what we really wanted to do was to bring together disabled and non-disabled people to talk about our disability lived experiences, right? Because it's it's one thing to be witness to someone's disability story in disability community, but it's another thing to to that disability story in community between disabled and non-disabled people, right? And exactly what you said at the top of this conversation, the way that we change hearts and minds around difference or around disability is really by getting that firsthand interaction, that IRL in real life interaction with someone who's right in front of you where you can ask those follow-up questions and you can really dig into what's unclear for you to really shape your own understanding around disability. So at Georgetown, we hosted a bunch of different events. All of them were were themed around different things. So we would host an event that was, you know, a documentary about comedians with disabilities and host a conversation afterward. We did a art study break where we would ask people to paint what they thought disability quote unquote looked like, right? Again, kind of showcasing that disability doesn't just look like one thing. That's really interesting. And um, partnered, partnered with a local coffee shop to like display all of the all of the things that people painted because disability means different things to different people, right? And exactly what you said around mental health disabilities, right? And the fact that we can't, like the majority of disabilities we can't see, right? Disability doesn't have one look. And so I left that at Georgetown and, and my background is in finance. So I went to go work in, in, on Wall Street and in investment banking I'm sorry to interject, but I feel like it kind of boggles my mind because your personality and I mean, I'll be completely stereotypical here and that like you don't seem like you belong on Wall Street. <laughs> mm. And I I love that you said that because I got so many comments when I was working in banking that I was too nice and that I was never going to make it if I continued to be that way. And <laughs> Great. what I... <laughs> What I ultimately ended up doing, though, I mean, I ended up, I mean, I was only in banking for a couple of years, but I did work in finance for like six or seven years and then moved to the corporate side. But I just trusted myself and I ended up ranking at the top bucket of my my performance class, like while I was in banking. Oh, I believe I believe that you would excel at it. I just find it fascinating as like what the contrast of personalities are there. For sure. And you know what? I think what's interesting is I do think that working in banking transformed me. And the real and honestly, I didn't I didn't mention this in Diversity's founding story, but it was my internship at Goldman Sachs that really shaped how I feel, how I wanted to feel about disability in 2009 and how I feel about disability in 2021. And what I mean by that is that 
When I did that summer internship in 2009 in investment banking, it was ruthless. I was not sleeping. I was so stressed out. It was really cutthroat. You know, you had those like the UPenn kids from Wharton and the NYU kids from Stern and, and they all like knew how to build all of the financial models. And what I learned is that no one gave me an easy pass for life because I was disabled. Right. And I think I had grown up thinking that it was okay to sit on the sidelines. And then when I was in this environment and no one cared, they were like, Tiffany, we need the pitch book by Monday at 9 a.m. Do it with one hand, two hands, no hands, octopus arms. I mean, they didn't actually say that, but but that's how I felt, right? Yeah. There was no easy pass for me, right? And and this this is something that I often talk about when I go into companies is that, you know, if you think that you're like making a token hire by bringing a disabled person in, that disabled person needs to perform, right? In order for them to excel and feel like they're doing well and contributing and being valuable in that environment, right? So if I didn't think that, I was doing well as an investment banker, I wouldn't have lasted there very long, right? So anyway, what I tell people is like, you got to give the disabled person the chance because so much of our systemic environment is telling us, give disabled people the easy pass for life, which is okay in certain instances, but it also doesn't push us to stretch past our comfort zone. So anyway, so it was kind of that like tough love environment in banking that said, wow, what what would it look like if I created a disability community where we really push disabled people to see beyond this systemic, these systemic limits that our external environment is placing on us? Yeah, I think that's a really awesome point. And again, sorry to interject, but I find it really fascinating that you made the comment about sort of like being handed the easy pass So do you feel like growing up because you mentioned, you know, not really talking about it in your family? And I assume that sort of means, you know, that proliferated most likely throughout school and things like that, just knowing how how different it was 20 some years ago. Do you feel like people tended to coddle you a little bit because of your disability? Or do you think it was just more that they tried not to disrupt things too much and and tried to kind of keep the calm waters for you? Mm. I will share three small stories. So one story is that I had to take, so physical education was a mandatory class that I had to take every single year after I became disabled all the way up through high school. And my mom would write a note for me every single year that I would give to my physical education teacher. And no words were exchanged in that interaction. It was literally like I walk up to the physical education teacher, hand him or her the note, they look at it, they have a face of, I'm sorry, or I understand, trying to be empathetic, but it comes off sympathetic, and I just walk away, right? That to me is the epitome of what I felt like my childhood was. I didn't have a voice. The second story I want to share is that because I had told no one about the car accident, I became hyper aware of stares, but again, I didn't have a voice. Mm -hmm. And which leads me to my third story, which is I recently reconnected with someone I went to high school with, middle school and high school with, Elisa. And we were just chatting because she's doing some really incredible work around healing, healing through childhood trauma. Healing honestly. Yes, healing honestly. 
And she said, so we went to high school. We went to middle school and high school together. And we were also in like student government together. And she goes, Tiffany, I knew about your arm, but I didn't know about the car accident. And what that signified to me is that I did not take control and ownership over my story at all when I was a kid. So I could tell that people knew something was up with my arm. I mean, I knew, like, of course I knew something was up with my arm, but no one was saying anything and I wasn't saying anything. So I was leaving to them making whatever assumptions they wanted to around how my arm manifested in my body, which is why I'm so vocal about it now, because I want to take control of the narrative and ownership over it before you assume who I am as a person with a disability. Yeah, that's such a really great series of stories to provide the context for it, too. And when you're telling that, it really brings me into this mindset of thinking about someone as a young child who is, you know, in just generally awkward stages of life to begin with, right? Like nobody is like feeling they're most comfortable when we're that young or especially in middle school and high school. And so, I mean, I think anybody has a hard enough time with those years in their lives, let alone somebody who has something that it distinctly sets them apart physically. And at the same time, you're not having any sort of conversation about it. And do you feel like you you internalized a lot of that? Do you feel like there was there was self-judgment or perceived judgment from others? A thousand percent, right? I mean, talk about like low self-esteem, low self-confidence. These are all things that I am continuously unlearning. There's a phrase that we use within the disability community and out of the disability community as well called internalized ableism, right? And this is how much, and recently, yesterday I heard I was listening in on a conversation on Clubhouse and they were talking about internalized misogyny. And I just think about how much of these messages we are internalizing either consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously. I mean, I don't know which version of the consciously (laughs) we need to be talking about. And the thing is like so much of that was reinforced by my external environment, right? My mom didn't teach me to be proud of my disability identity because no one was talking to me about it. I didn't know how to talk about it without being a victim, without crying, right? Because there was so much pain in there. I think, again, back to that turning point of when did you realize that like you needed to be that disability advocate for yourself? The way that my victimhood, I think, manifested in my body, you know, and I think I think there have been studies done that show that trauma does store itself in the body. Right. Yeah. So by not letting it out, like it's it's impacted my posture and the way I move about the world. And so now I'm doing all these like posture exercises to get back. But like because I felt so small in that story and I felt like I was a victim in my own story, that's how my body formed around that story and around that experience. That's really interesting. And I, I've i read quite a bit about how trauma manifests in the body, specifically the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, I think is uh, the author's name. And it's, I think the beginning of it really highlights a lot around PTSD in veterans, um, because that's one of the highest incidents of it. But it's really, I'm a fierce advocate for trying to put an end to domestic and sexual violence. And I, I believe that I read that victims of sexual or survivors and victims of sexual violence, that they have a higher incidence of PTSD than even war veterans. And so it sort of begs the question, how are we supposed to understand that if we never acknowledge it or talk about it or show up for ourselves in those moments? Because you, if you pull yourself out of the, the moment itself and you ask yourself, what am I feeling and why am I feeling this way? And this is like, 
years of therapy of like, well, what do you feel in your body when you acknowledge this thing? Right. And it's like, well, you're tense or you're getting geared up. Like one of the things that I always feel when I reference a specific trauma is like fists clench, arms kind of get really tight. Like I'm ready to get into like fight mode, even though I've never thrown a punch at anybody in my life. It's like my body is feeling ultra defensive about this. And in order to get to a place of more complete healing, and and I don't know that we ever fully heal, right? I think it's an ongoing process, but you have to first recognize it, then acknowledge it, and then figure out how to allow that feeling to dissipate while still understanding that that is part of your lived experience. Do you feel like that's a similar sort of frame of reference that you have for yourself too in in that acknowledgement of like what that trauma feels like as it comes up? Yeah, Elisa from Healing Honestly actually had this amazing blog post where she talked about untangling grief from trauma. The way I've understood her post is that we can retell a story without reliving it. Oh, I love that. If we are retelling it and reliving it, it means that we still have that trauma stored so deeply in our bodies that when we try and experience grief, right, and grief comes in waves and it's kind of a lifelong grief journey for for all of us in different ways, Absolutely. if trauma is still embedded in there at different points in time, then then there's still more work to do. And And a more succinct way to say that is... And and I heard this. I heard this again on Clubhouse. I feel like all all things track back to Clubhouse. Well, it's great because my social manager just told me that I should be on it. So you're you're validating this for me. Yeah. <laughs> but, but someone said so. I was part of a conversation around the hero's journey, right? So how do you go from being a victim to being a survivor to being a thriver to being the hero, right? Aligned with being the hero. And someone I had shared my story, and someone said, you know, you have to name it to tame it. And because I didn't know that what I had was PTSD, right, because it had been over 20 years since the car accident, and I was self-judging, I was judging myself that it had already been over 20 years since this accident. And why was I having these emotional outbursts and reacting in this way, right? And, and I think shaming myself for feeling pain around something that I hadn't hadn't fully processed that had happened 20 years ago. And something that's so deeply traumatic. I mean, it's even just the way you speak about it now. I mean, I know that you've taken to your story to speaking events. You've done TED Talks. I imagine that you've gotten to this place where you can speak about it more objectively, as you were mentioning, and, and sort of separate the grief a little bit from that sense of reliving it. But being nine years old and acquiring, you know, a physical disability and then also the loss of your father. I mean, to to feel like you've buried that within yourself at such a young age in my own experience in therapy, too. It's like you actually don't realize how much you're repressing it because you've conditioned yourself to live life with this expectation of like, I just need to keep going and I need to get through this. But Do you feel like as you've gotten older that you've also, aside from your disability, had to face sort of like that grief for the loss of your father as well? And if that's not too personal to ask. No, for sure. I mean, I love I feel like I'm on a mission to really destigmatize trauma, destigmatize grief, destigmatize disability, because all of these are truly human experiences that we have so much fear of, but they're there. (laughs) 
I love that you mentioned that because I actually, I did not, I did not know that the car accident was trauma until I met someone named Sarah Fader. She runs a nonprofit called Stigma Fighters that's around tackling the stigma around mental illness. And I met her in 2016, 2015, 2016. And I told her my story and she goes, Tiffany, that's trauma and you might have PTSD. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, because I always just called the car accident, the car accident. I never had called it trauma, right? Again, the name it to tame it. And so I know you asked about my dad at the, I want to say at the end of 2018, I read Option B by Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant, which was really her her journey around losing her husband suddenly and wanting to better understand how people move through adversity. And that to me was the beginning of my grief journey related to my dad. And I ended up joining a group called the Dinner Party, which is for millennials who have lost a loved one, could be a parent, a friend, a sibling, however you want to define that. And I joined my first dinner party dinner in January of 2020. And that is when I was ready. (laughs) My dad passed away in 1997 and January of 2020 was when I was ready to talk about that. And I want to share one other story, which is in February of 2020. It's interesting. We look at 2020 and we're like, man, it was a wash of a year because of the pandemic. But when I look at it, I was like, wow, I traveled to all these places and I'm so grateful that I did. And then the pandemic happened and, you know, you and I met and we're having this conversation now. So, so there is opportunity in there. I love that you said that, too. I I totally agree with you. I think 2020 was absolutely a disaster of a year for many reasons. But I will say that I, I think that there is this sense of personal growth that a lot of people are feeling because we've all collectively been traumatized by this experience. And we have to challenge our beliefs of what, you know, our expectations were versus what reality is and how you adapt to that. Mm, yeah. February 2020, February 2020, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and wow. on, on, just and went on the for summit it. day, <laughs> I just, I just went for it. And I feel like I'm that type of person. Like I am the type of person who I know, I know that I'm working to unlearn my negative self-talk and I have pervasive self-doubt. And like, I know there's like negativity and pessimism just brewing in there, but I still take action. (laughs) It's self-awareness though, that I think is the key, right? It's like, if you know it, like you said, you have to name it to tame it. And the same thing goes for something like that. Exactly. So on summit day, I, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But one of the things that ended up happening was right at those final steps to the summit, you know, at this point, I'm at like 19,000 feet. I've got one of our guides, one of our porters holding, holding up one of my arms. I've got one of the guys from my group holding up one of my other arms. And we're all just, you know, taking steps together. And in that moment, I looked around and I realized like, wow, I'm surrounded by men. And, you know, working in banking, I have been in male dominated environments, but I have always been really intentional about around finding women women identifying communities. And so at this point, that was not it. And what it made me realize was, oh, you know, this reminds me of me and my dad, because my dad was loved biking, loved biking in the middle of DC summers, so humid, like you walk outside and you already want to take a shower and he still wanted yep. to go biking. And, and everything active was because of him. He was just so adventurous. He loved exploring. 
And I wanted to share this story because I feel like when we think about people we lose, and Cheryl mentioned this in her in the book Option B as well, is we never get asked about those happy moments of the people that we lost. Instead, we get the condolences, we get the sorry for your loss. And and while while I do sit in that place, I did have experiences. With my my dad gave me my sense of adventure. Like my mom, after my dad passed, like my mom never wanted to do anything outside. It was only until I moved to San Francisco that I realized, oh, this is what hiking is and this is what it's like to be outside. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I want to mention that story because I think that in my grief journey or in suppressing my grief for so long around losing my dad, right, in my family, and and I have talked about this publicly, my mom would tell people that my dad was away on a trip, even after he passed away, right? And that, that was the narrative that we needed to carry around. So I couldn't even tell anybody that he had passed to get the the condolences or the I'm sorry for your loss, right? And again, in me sharing the story of the car accident and his passing, it made me realize that I could also shift the narrative that it didn't always need to be sad when I, or I didn't always need to be angry that I lost him because I still remember all of the gifts that he gave me, right? Including my own life. That truly warms my heart. I I feel such a, an innate connection to that because while it's most certainly not the same experience, but, you know, I experienced loss at a pretty young age. One of my best friends passed away in a car accident when we were 16 and I wasn't with him. But I feel like you sort of stifle yourself because you start to gain this sense of I don't know if this is how you felt. But for me, it's like all of a sudden you're faced with your mortality and it's a very young age to be faced with mortality, 16, 9, all of those things, you know, and then to feel like, especially during those times that nobody really knows how to talk to you about it. And saying that you're sorry, I always say this, it's like, it's so trite. And it's not that it's not well-intentioned. It's just that of course, you know, like I I would hope that people aren't like, oh, good. Glad that happened. You know, like it, it's like you want to understand that people are sympathetic or empathetic to what you're going through, but it doesn't open the door to the conversation about how you truly feel. And so when I do interact with people who have experienced loss over the years, I've tried to cultivate a different conversation about it because I, I want to to help people understand much like you said that this is not just the loss it is it is what you were able to relish in those experiences that you shared with this person the little things that you're going to walk around your house and be you know remember maybe like that's where your your dad sat or like this place where i you know used to hang out with one of my friends and you start to like you said take control of that narrative And instead of sinking into the grief and the pain of it, you allow yourself to find that light and that hope and that desire to keep that person alive within you. And so I love that that sense of adventure that your dad instilled in you is something that you're able to revive and and bring into your life so fully today. I mean, Mount Kilimanjaro, shit, Tiffany, that's so cool. (laughs) I know it was it was so hard. I mean, you did you did not want to no one was my friend on on that hike. I, I can't even believe it. I mean, that's and just in general, because I think I just don't personally have like that, that I don't know that I have that determination. I mean, I'm sure if I if I really set my mind to it, I could probably get there. But, you know, I've actually been speaking to 
a new friend that I made very quickly uh, through the podcast who's a Paralympic hopeful and she's a hand cyclist. And she and I have been talking a lot about this. And I actually mentioned you to her and and thought it might be a great opportunity to connect because I think that there's this very similar mentality about let's just have the conversations and be open books about these things that we experience, whether they're physical, emotional, mental, because the more that we are afraid to ask questions because we're afraid of offending somebody or afraid of being wrong, you know, we, as you mentioned, we assume things, we just guess. And so I would prefer to say, hey, I might sound ignorant. I might sound stupid. I'm really sorry about that, but I'm trying to understand more. Can you talk to me about what this is like for you or how are you able to do X, Y, Z with this physical limitation? And I think that's where the curiosity of people who aren't dealing with those things needs to meet the openness of people who are dealing with them. So then you can have this moment of recognition from both sides of it. You know, sometimes we take things for granted if we're able-bodied and I mean, more often than not. And then you see people who have disabilities pushing 20,000 times harder because they understand, you know, like you understand that you need to put that extra effort into it. Whereas I'm like, I don't work out that much because I just don't want to, you know, and I feel like, you know, the more that you speak to people who show up so fully with the limitations that they have, I actually, I hate calling them limitations. And I did want to ask you this. I'm going to kind of tangent here for a second. I feel like calling things disabilities is somehow offensive, but it is the term that you use. So I'm, I've heard, you know, differently abled and different terms. So is disability really the the most accurate and comprehensive term? Because I also feel like some of these things aren't necessarily disabilities the same way, you know, like things aren't necessarily mental disorders. They're just different. Mm, That's a great question. So I get this question a lot and I want to talk about the way I often talk about this is in terms of power. So when we, when we call someone who is disabled, differently abled, we are giving the word disability power to mean bad. And what I want people to unlearn If you take anything away from this, listening to this, what I want people to unlearn is that we really need to unlearn that disability equals bad. We need to unlearn that disability equals broken and that disability equals less than, right? I mean, that is at the root of what ableism is, right? It's treating one group of people based on their body and mind above another. When I use the word disability, what I'm doing is I'm giving it power to mean what I want it to mean. Let me define disability on my own terms, Yeah. right? And I don't know if you followed this, but I think last year the, the definition of racism was changed to include systemic. And so when I look at the definition of disability, at its core, it says something like a, a condition of the body or mind that limits an everyday activity. And I would love for us to, to add the word systemic in there because embedded in that word disability is ableism, right? Right. It's including that word limitation, right? Kind of a long-winded way of saying there is nothing wrong with the word disability. And my hope is that we can start a movement where everyone uses the word disability to, to mean what it is, which is people have disabilities, right? Like what I have is a disability. I've accomplished a lot of things, but those are all based on my capabilities and my qualifications. And so I don't want to 
I think when we use words other than disability, we are diminishing the experiences of those of us who actually do have disabilities, right? Because, okay, I live by myself in San Francisco, but like my arm is still paralyzed. Right. I, I still, you know, like I, I've learned how to adapt a lot of different things, but I'm living in a world that was made for people who can use both arms. I was just, I was just, you know, it's interesting. And I was just going to say something and it sparked two thoughts for me. One, so I'm, this is not a disability, but it functions, I think, sometimes as one, which is being left-handed, which I know that you said you had to learn to write with your left hand. So not only did you lose the ability to use your right arm, but you also have to use the one that like nothing in this world is built for, which is like super inconvenient. The desks in schools and things like that, you know, even like scissors or or cars, you know, driving where the stick shift is. It's like these things that are, have been configured and over time have just proliferated and become the norm. I think part of it is starting to destigmatize this idea and also rebuild the way that we do things so it is more accessible for all people and something that's maybe more ambidextrous than just targeted towards right-handed people or even with being diagnosed a couple of years ago with ADHD. It's like I've dealt with that my whole life. I had no idea that I was life hacking my way through school growing up because I couldn't learn the way everybody else learned. So I just did what I needed to do to keep going and in in retrospect, I'm like, oh, my God, it could have been that much easier. I really just thought it was this hard for everybody. You know, like I thought that the, the, there were these like, you know, hurdles that everybody else had to cross and, and there weren't. And so I think when you talk about disability as really owning that term and you said just because you you've achieved these things and you're capable of these things doesn't mean this disability doesn't exist. So would you say that disability is really sort of the inverse of capability. And that's really like more the context in which we should subscribe to it as opposed to like disability has this negative connotation, which means you can't. Mm, that is a good question. To be honest, I'm not quite sure what my answer is to that just yet. That's because fair. It was, I was loaded. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was noodling on something that you said, which is something else that I have heard a lot of is people will informally say, well, we all have disabilities. And right. what I want to highlight is in in saying something like that, again, we're demand, no, not everyone has a disability. Some people have disabilities and some people don't have disabilities. But by saying that, like, we all have disabilities, again, it's I think it's like taking a critical lens to say, well, what are you actually saying about disability? Right. Are you diminishing the experience of people who actually do have disabilities by saying that we all have disabilities? Right. I think to your question. The way I view it is that we have disabled people and we have non-disabled people. And I think that disability is a human experience that 26% of us in the U.S. and 17% of us globally experience. One of the things that I did notice was I was looking into the definition of disability more because I started this informal series on TikTok called the Anti-Ableism Daily, which was inspired by a friend, Nicole Cardoza, who started a newsletter called the Anti-Racism Daily. But I was like, I don't have, I don't want to write, but I just want to provide these like really short 15 second tidbits of like facts and different things of how we can all be better. I think for me, I'll hear these phrases where people are like, don't look at my disabilities, look at my abilities, right? Again, that's diminishing 
the disability, right? And people will be like, look at how successful this person has been despite their disabilities, which again is diminishing the role that disability played in that person's life. And so I think that language is so sensitive. So, right. So the reason why I feel so strongly about this is I used to actually talk about, and this is where my own internalized ableism comes out, is I used to talk about disabilities and abilities. And so I would go in and I'd be talking to, you know, a corporate client and I would say, that person may have disabilities, but look at their abilities in the workplace. And then I got called out and and the other person who was on the panel was like, I think we really need to change our thinking around talking about things in terms of abilities and instead talking about them in terms of capabilities, right? So again, if we come back to this example of me working in investment banking, the pitch book got done. Does it really matter how it got done? You know, <laughs> when I say this, I'm, I, I also understand that I'm feeding into productivity and, and capitalistic culture, which is about like output. But if that's the system that we're currently operating in, which I will sidebar and say is inherently ableist, but like if that's the system that we're operating in, why are we talking about people's disabilities and abilities rather than Their you know the capability? Yeah, rather than like the capabilities and like what the output is. The cup of coffee got made, you know, right. and so. It actually brings me back to a moment uh, when I was a kid with my mom at the store getting party favors. And I remember her asking me, you know, okay, well, if this many people are coming, then how many packs of this would you need based on how many are in the package? And I'm like, okay. And so I guess I out loud did the math. And my mom was like, okay, yes, you got to the right answer. I don't really understand why you went that route. But yes, you totally got that answer. And to be able to look at that in retrospect through the lens of ADHD, it's like, yeah, that totally tracks. But to my mom, who wouldn't have known anything about it back then, it was just, okay, you got to the right answer, right? And that's really what matters. And that's sort of how I propelled myself through my education as well, because I wasn't a good test taker. I could I could negotiate any multiple choice answer to be like, it could be too. Here's why. And so for me, it was like, how do you harm what you are capable of and do that in a way that allows you to still be successful in a world that might not be geared towards the way that you are wired. Mm, yeah, exactly. And, and I think this also ties into a broader message around, around advocacy, right? Which is, I think that sometimes this is probably a very loose tangent, but by all um, means. It, made, it, it made me think about how critical we are of other people's advocacy sometimes, right? So, you know, why aren't you showing up to the protest or why haven't you signed this petition or why haven't you made this donation? Everyone advocates in their own way. And the ultimate goal is more equity, more inclusion, a more compassionate world, right? But we all have different ways of getting there, right? So if that's the ultimate goal, Who are we to say, you know, exactly like you said, talking to your mom, like, how did you get that answer? But if we know what the what the dream is, what the ideal is, all of us are going to take our own ways getting there. Yeah, I, I really love that perspective, Tiffany. Yeah. One of the things that I'm I'm curious about, you had mentioned um, when I was looking at Diversability's site is you posed the question, why was the world's largest minority, one billion people, so the disabled community, often overlooked in diversity conversations? This one really pokes at me quite a bit because I work in HR technology for my day job and I hate 
how sort of myopic maybe is the word. I don't know if it's the right word, but like so narrow, let's say the view of diversity is it actually drives me insane when you have these questions that are, oh, well, you, do you have a disability? Are you a veteran? It really sort of says these are the answers without any context. And we're going to make decisions based on an extremely finite amount of information, which makes it very difficult to be inclusive of people with a variety of things that they might be dealing with from either a disability perspective or anything else. So when you consider that sort of lack of awareness around disability in the bigger picture, do you see that more from the standpoint of the conversations aren't happening at large? Do you see it that they're not happening in businesses where they need to happen? Or is it something else? Yeah, I mean, I often joke that my answer to all questions is either ableism or internalized ableism. (laughs) (laughs) And, And what I mean by that is we don't have enough people modeling we don't have enough people within corporates modeling what it looks like to truly embrace disability inclusion. What I mean by that is, and I'm not sure, I don't want to cite the numbers, but it is a very low number of people who are disabled in the workplace who actually self-disclose. I mean, I believe that. Do you think that's fear of retribution, essentially, like not being hired or not being seen as an equal player? I think <laughs> I think the answer is internalized ableism. But but yeah, <laughs> no, no. But it's like internalized ableism because of the fear of re- retribution, which highlights the overt ableism that is existing right in our right. society. That is saying you can't if show you up. Fear, yeah. If you fear that by showing up as a disabled person, people are not going to hire you or promote you, we are feeding into an ableist system. The other thing is take you seriously, right? I think that that's and and I mean that in the sense of I think that people tend to maybe under assume what somebody can take on if they know about either a physical or mental disability that somebody faces. And that might not be the case. But like, is somebody else's limiting belief limiting your ability to progress? Exactly. So I'll share two tidbits around this. People often ask me, what do you think is the biggest misconception around disability? And I say it's people see our disabilities and they judge our capabilities. And this feeds into like two stories. So one is I worked at Goldman Sachs, then I worked at Bloomberg, and then I was director level and sitting in at board meetings at P. Diddy's Revolt TV. You have quite the resume, Tiffany. <laughs> I know, but, but it's like if you look at my CV or sorry, if you if you look at me and you see that I can't use one of my arms, and my hand my hand looks different, but what I say is the universe wouldn't have made my hand look different if it wasn't supposed to look like that. You know? I love um, that. But, but people see my hand, and they're like, wow, it looks so painful. I mean, they make all these assumptions, right? Then they hear my CV, and I worked at all these places, and you know, even in the context of my disability advocacy work, I've had the opportunity to address CEOs and world leaders at super elite forums like Davos, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. And I'm curious, and maybe this is my own internalized ableism, I do all of those things because I know how the world is trying to shape my story for me by saying, how in the world could she have done all these things? But now when you see the CV, you cannot question my 
my ability or my capability. I don't know. It's so hard to like figure out which words. <laughs> you, you have the clout. <laughs> yes, yes. But there are so many other disabled people who just aren't even given that first chance, right? And so they're perpetually and systemically caught in this poverty cycle. That's a really, really great perspective and note to make because I think that that's so spot on. It, it is. It's it's much like a lot of other things in our society where you get sort of locked into this perception and to get yourself out of it, you have to do exponentially more than anybody else would have to do just to validate your experience. And I see that so much more clearly, even just coming out of this conversation and, and the idea of this really embedded ableism that exists for us. And I'm so truly grateful for this conversation because the revelations are happening real time. And and it's so cool to understand, first of all, just that you've had that life experience. I mean, it's such a beautiful timeline of events to really construct for yourself. So, I mean, more power to you in any condition, honestly, like those are achievements regardless of anything else that exists as part of your identity. But to know that you are showing up for yourself fully and that you're showing up for other people who experience things like yourself. I mean, that's that's part of it, too. Right. It's the representation that is lacking as much as the awareness is lacking and even seeing it more and more in, in films. Right. Like having somebody in a wheelchair be a main character, having people with different disabilities be more regularly written into content like these are things that we have to advocate for, even if we are not part of those communities, because every single person deserves the opportunity. Mm, I love that. And and this is part of the reason why I think I am talking so much about ableism these days, because it's actually a term. I'll meet people and they're like, Tiffany, I didn't even know what ableism was before I met you. And now I can't unsee it. Right. Right. It's in the words that people use. It's in how we talk about disability, because I was part of a conversation about confidence on Clubhouse again, where we all are. I clearly I'm I'm missing out on the fun. I'm going to really I'm going to I literally will sign up after this call. (laughs) So we were talking about confidence and someone mentioned around how how they have gone around where their confidence comes from, comes from going about the world and not seeing any limits, like being limitless. Interesting. At which point I came in and I said, hey, I'm curious how much of that narrative is rooted in privilege because there are systemic factors that are limiting me in the multiply oppressed identities that I hold. At which point someone else responded and said, Tiffany, and I said, you know, I'm a disabled woman of color and, you know, so much of my external narrative is telling me that I need to feel sorry for myself and that my body isn't good and that I'm not going to get as many opportunities and I need to fight. I need to fight. At which point someone responded, they said, Tiffany, you shouldn't see yourself as disabled. You need to see yourself as differently abled. And, and at which point I said, Hey, I'm actually really proud of my disability identity and exactly how you responded to me is what I am trying to combat, which is you hear that I'm disabled and you assume I feel shame. This is systemic and it is environmental. Her mentor and I, we were chatting about, I I ended up co-chairing this world economic forum on sustainable development. And one of the other co-chairs was like, the president of Colombia, the country, and all of these really incredible <laughs> sure. like CEOs and stuff. You know, it's like, here's Tiffany, 
and here's the president of Colombia. But then I was like, <laughs> I deserve my, they wouldn't have picked me if they didn't think that I deserve my place there. And I deserve my place there just as much as the president of Colombia. Absolutely. Right? And how amazing <laughs> and, is it that you can say that? Hell yeah. <laughs> but what I want to say and what my mentor said to me is, Tiffany, I want to celebrate your achievements, but I also want you to be cognizant of the fact that there are just as many equal factors that are trying to push you down. I wish I could think of a more articulate way to say that, but what I'm trying to get at is that it's exhausting to try and push against a system and a narrative that is saying that I need to be ashamed of who I am. I'm trying to like course correct, right? By being like, hey, I'm disabled. I'm so proud. I'm thriving. This is what it looks like to be like disabled and well. And like, here's our place in the wellness industry. They're not mutually exclusive. They're together. But that's exhausting because there's no... One of my friends talked about how like the, bo the body positivity industry, the real bodies movement and how there's kind of like an industry that's been created around the celebration of like natural and real bodies. Why don't we have those similar and equal movements for people who have chronic illness or people who have disabilities, for right? Sure. I'm hoping that, and I have to cite where all my, I have to give credit where it's due, that that idea or that, that line of thinking came from someone named Nitika Chopra who founded Chronicon, which is this incredible community for people with chronic illness. And she really got me thinking because she and I are both, you know, we're both like, she's chronically ill, I'm disabled. We're both like thrive, thriving. We're waving our pride flags. We're saying, look at us. We're so proud. We're really great. But we're at the precipice. And I'm hoping at the beginning of this movement that other people catch on that this ends up becoming like its own industry. Yeah, I think that's such a really, it's a brilliant idea. I feel so strongly that a big part of getting to that point is making sure that people who both have disabilities or chronic illnesses and also people who don't are all part of that conversation because in order to, I think, really help people understand it, you need people who are separate of that community or maybe not as deeply embedded in that community to be able to shine that light for people who can't see it on their own. And it's unfortunate to say that, right? But I, I feel like part of it is, you've said this throughout the conversation, is people make assumptions, right? And if people are afraid to ask about a disability and then they're never going to have the conversation about it. They're going to go on living their life the way that they lived it. And if you have a conversation about it, maybe the next time they see somebody with a disability, they'll ask instead of, you know, just assuming that they know what the circumstances. And it's just those little bits and pieces that start to accumulate and become this movement that you're talking about. I, I mean, I can't tell you how much since the first conversation that we had to introduce ourselves and in talking to my friend Ryan, who's the uh, who's the hand cyclist, like I have in a matter of a month shifted my perspective on disability and what people are capable of just as human beings who have resilience. And it's super empowering to me as someone who who doesn't have a physical limitation like that. And it brings me to this place of awareness that I never would have gotten to if I hadn't seen people talking about it and being proud of it and owning it because it takes away that apprehension that mentioning it to them is wrong. Like, don't highlight it as if 
you all don't know that that's something that, that that everybody sees, you know, and it's so it's like it's really interesting to me how little I knew and then how rapidly I learned so much because you and my other friend have been so open and willing to be like, this is my lived experience and this is what I can show you from that. And and it really is just as much, I think, about willing to be receptive to it as it is about willing to be open about it on your side. Yeah. And and I think I'll, the one thing I'll mention is we always say, you know, like when in doubt, ask questions, but everyone is at a different point in their disability journey. And so some people are very open as I am. Some people are not right. And I think it's also just having, if someone doesn't feel comfortable kind of digging into those spaces, having respect, you know, and, and because I think what often happens is someone asks a disabled person a question and that person doesn't necessarily feel comfortable answering. Right. And then the person who asked the question like gets offended and kind of like takes it personally. But, but again, I think that it's really, you know, I think like you and I, we've had a series of conversations and, and, you know, I'm very open, but, but for those like 12 years after I became disabled, like from 97 until 2009, I did not answer anyone's questions who asked me about my arm. I would literally just start crying, right? And so I probably wasn't the best person right. to be asking those questions. That's a really good point on where people are in their journey. And when you said, you know, having that respect and understanding if they're ready to talk about it, it is, I think, it, it's sort of a double-edged sword in some cases where you're like, I want to ask, but I don't know if I should ask or if I can ask. And so part of it is I, I would suspect, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree with this, is entering that conversation if you're going to ask the question with, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but I'm curious to know because I don't want to assume. Being willing to say, this is your story, this is your space, I don't need to know if you don't want me to know. And I think that goes really hand in hand with the mental health side of it too, because PTSD is that invisible illness, right? Um, My wife suffers from chronic migraine and like you don't see that, but every day she wakes up with a pounding headache that most of us wouldn't be able to deal with for a day, let alone every day of your life. And so I'm curious from your perspective, do you think that that's part of it is entering that conversation with open-mindedness and outward respect for, you know, tell me what you want to tell me or don't? Yes. Yes. Because I think where I see it go downhill is when non-disabled people are demanding information from a disabled person, right? right? Tell me, I think I read somewhere was like, no one owes you a response to telling you intimate details about their disabilities or how they became disabled. And so I loved, I loved the, the way you prefaced it, right? And the hope is you have an existing relationship with that person, right? For you to say, hey, totally fine if you don't feel comfortable, but I'm really curious about this. Right. Yeah. Not just going up to random people and attempting to educate yourself, (laughs) ideally. I wanted to ask, as we're rounding out the conversation, so Diversability, this community that you've built, you're putting a lot of energy into it. There's a lot of, it looks like, momentum behind what you're doing with that. So what would you say is your vision for the future of Diversability in the near term? And and how can people get involved with, uh, with the community and who are you looking for to join the community? Sure. So my vision for the future, wow. Diversity, we just finished participating in the Facebook Community Accelerator. And I was so proud because 84% of the funding we received as being part of that accelerator program 
went into hiring disabled contractors to help us execute on our growth plans. That's awesome. And I bring that up because I really want to put my money where my values are, which are, I believe there is value in the disability community. We have data that show it. And that's what I'm going to do. So we won pitch day, which is awesome. Um, so we are, we are receiving a little bit more funding to continue to grow. And because our product is a community, I am starting to really think about what would it look like to invest another 25K into our community? So stay tuned, more news on that for, for sure. But I think the vision for me is now I'm just noticing so much energy around this disability conversation and whether it happens in the context of diversibility or not, I'm all for it, right? I never wanted diversibility to be something that was rooted in ego or what, or that was Tiffany's thing. Right. And when I think about what we do at diversibility is our hope is that we can get, I often talk about how we have two disability origin stories. My first origin story happened in 1997 when I became disabled. My second happened in 2009, where I decided to share my story and take ownership of my narrative. And my vision or our mission at Diversibility is to get as many people to that second story as possible. And I'll acknowledge due to internalized ableism and other systemic factors that many, some disabled people may not get to that second story, right? There are some disabled people who don't want to be proud or who don't see their disability as part of their identity, or who don't, you know, who go around and and say, like, I'm not disabled when our external environment is saying you are. Because again, they've associated disability equals bad, or disability equals broken, or disability equals less than. So in the past, when people asked me this question, it was that diversibility would cease to exist, because we would have created a world where uh, disability is so embedded into our society but as I, the reason why I have mentioned the word systemic so many times is that we've like had policies and media and education that are like inherently ableist. <laughs> My vision is, I think, playing a part, small or large, since I want to manifest, I'm going to say making a huge ass impact <laughs> in terms of really, I think, being more active anti ableists. You know, I think back in June with everything that happened with George Floyd we started to really understand what the difference was between being not racist versus being actively anti-racist. Totally. And I would love to see, and this is where I see diversibility playing a part, is how can we contribute you know, to the non-disabled world? How can we contribute to the conversation that it's one thing to be not ableist, but it is another thing to be actively anti-ableist? Wow. So that leads me to... How can people get involved with diversibility? And I spent a lot of time kind of thinking about this. So there's like the soft side of things, which is the diversibility community exists on Facebook. It's free for people to join. We do try to be disability centered in the conversations that are happening there. But our group is open to disabled and non-disabled allies who want to be on the forefront of better kind of being a fly on the wall to conversations that disabled people are having. And we love, you know, within our community, we love just meeting people where they're, where they are. Right. So you and I 
before we started recording, we were chatting about, you know, what are the best accessible video platforms to host this podcast on? That could be a great conversation to put put in there because we have a ton of disabled podcasters who have been doing, have been running their podcast way longer than the one season I have. Yeah, same, um, right? So, yeah, for sure. So, I, that's so, a good starting point. I appreciate that tip. <laughs> What was interesting for me being part of the Accelerator program is before we were part of the Accelerator program and people asked how they could get involved, I would say, follow us across social media, you know, join our events if you can. And I got challenged to say, if you want people, I got challenged to ask people to join our community to actually be witness to the conversations that we're having, to actually, you know, like be in the inner circle in a way. Which leads me to my third, which is it takes money to run all of these things. And so to the extent that you know, any of your listeners want to kind of take their advocacy or their allyship to the next level. We're in the process of kind of mapping out what our supporter levels will look like in terms of helping to sustain our work and and ensure that things are accessible in the things that we're hosting and the conversations that we're hosting. That's awesome. And definitely will add any links that you have to help provide more context for that or where people are able to contribute and join the community, of course. And and that's something that I need to do coming out of this call. I definitely would like to be more involved in the conversations. Like I said, this has been a real profound experience for me in, in just hearing your enthusiasm for what you're doing and hearing the heart behind why. And it's something that I feel so deeply that this is such a greater part of the the human element that, you know, especially in times like now where people are very divided, it, it becomes that much more important for us to acknowledge that the the differences that you can see or the differences that you might feel aren't necessarily the right way to think about things. And it, it involves, as I mentioned before, a lot of self-awareness and it, and it requires us to question what we know. And that gets to the point of systemic issues that we face, as you were mentioning. And, and so you can't change it unless you acknowledge it. And it kind of goes hand in hand with you have to name it to tame it. And I see that at a broader scale in the way that society works today in, in how we are just inherently ableist and racist and all of the things that we we I think we've been conditioned to see as quote normal but in reality they're not really aligned with a lot of people's ideals and so how do we start to strip away the expectation that has followed these conversations for so long and really it comes back to what you said throughout as well which is controlling the narrative and and having the ability to say, this is my story, this is my lived experience, and I can share that with you. And what can we take from hundreds or thousands or millions of people doing the same thing? Like, that's how true change really happens. And and it's sincerely inspiring, Tiffany. Like, I feel so enlightened and, and empowered to do what I can to help the community that you have created and to be able to expand that outwardly as well. So I'm so grateful for this conversation and the time and just candidly how completely articulate. I can't even say the word, though. Um, How (laughs) That's that's good. How completely articulate you are about what you're driving towards, because it really just adds a strong feeling of connection to the mission because you can tell how important it is to you. And and your story has been moving to me in more ways than I could explain. I'm so glad. And thanks for having me on. And, and I wanted to highlight, too, even in the context of 
our prep call and and you meeting Ryan and and now us recording this is your your perspective has changed, right? You've learned something. And Absolutely. so what I'm really trying to figure out, and if anyone who's listening knows, is how can we do this at scale? Because you and I are having a conversation. I hope we stay in touch after this, right? For sure. No and, question. And, and I find that so many people, you know, you're scrolling through your Facebook feed, you see that viral video, and it's a, a kid with cerebral palsy who just ran a race. You don't even know who the, no one has said who the kid's name is. It's just like inspiration porn that's just sitting out there to like make you feel better. But like you and I, Nikki, we're equal humans having a conversation together about how we're both working to unlearn and relearn and rewire to make the world more equitable for all of us, right? There's no power hierarchy here. Yeah, and so absolutely. how can we have more of those conversations, right? And, and to me, like, this is an example of an anti-ableist conversation, right? Where like an ableist conversation would be like, you're volunteering for me and you're only my friend because you're the volunteer, you know, like, I mean, some of those organizations do exist, which is totally fine because, because some people do need that structure, but how can, yeah, how can we be, and how can we see each other as equals coming to the table together in conversation rather than, I think oftentimes when I see these conversations happening, there is a power dynamic of, I know more than you and I'm only doing this because it, it makes me or it makes our organization look good. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you sharing that because it's true. I, I feel that the scale is something that seems really achievable, but it's how do you connect the dots from all the conversations you're having like this and to your point around the content that we see and you called it inspiration porn, which I love. It's true, right? It's like, oh, this makes me feel good. But there's no identity given to that person who just did that. And what we need to do is elevate that part of the conversation. Who is that person? What's their story? Not just, oh, they did this thing, but that that is a human being who exists, who has achieved something really incredible. And let's give credit where credit's due, because now you're opening the conversation to, you know, who is that person beyond that event as well? Because you don't want to just be the person in a viral video. You want to be who you are. And I, I think that you've really captured quite eloquently how we have this opportunity to move forward collectively. And you had said something earlier about not leading with ego. And I completely agree with that. I feel like the best way to connect with people and the best way to expand something like a movement of this sort is to check your ego at the door, be willing to be wrong, be willing to have to do difficult things that you might not have anticipated and, and show up for yourself because in order to show up for anybody else, that's step one. Yeah. I love that. Although I would love to be in a viral video. Um, well, same. opportunity prevents itself. Same. Okay. Well, then we can brainstorm on that. Let's see what we can do. Um, I, I, I really sincerely appreciate your time. I know you're, I know you're quite busy and it's been such a pleasure and an honor to speak with you and learn so much more about you and, and your vision for both diversity and just for the future of the conversation around disability. Of course. Thank you. Thanks, Tiffany. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Thanks for listening and a big thank you to Tiffany Yu for sharing her story and her time. Follow Tiffany on Instagram at I'm Tiffany Yu and make sure you also check out her website, TiffanyYu.com, where you can learn more about Tiffany's availability for speaking engagements and advocacy. This episode's Who the Fuck for a Cause is in support of Longmore Institute at SFSU. 
If you have the means, visit whothefck.com slash donate to contribute and help build a broader community that celebrates people with disabilities as innovative forces for social change. Make sure you subscribe to the Who the Fuck podcast on your preferred platform. And if you like what you hear, go ahead and share the love by reviewing the podcast on Apple too. Share your email at whothefck.com to receive updates about the podcast, merch, and more. Until next time.